Those of you, the four of you that we just recognize as graduating, of the four of you, how many of you still have grandparents who are living? Right. Okay, so all of you, all of you have, thank you, you can put your hands down. So all of you have grandparents who are living. This is great because today, as I start off my message, I'm going to explain to you why grandparents are the way they are. If you're a teenager, you really need to listen because I'm about to explain grandma and grandpa to you, okay? If you're my age, you're gonna go, that's mom and dad. Now, if you're here and you're a grandparent, and if I'm like, if I'm in the zone and you're like, yes, just slowly raise your hand, rock it back and forth, and you just say preach, you can even mouth, okay? And I'll know that, that I've hit it on the nail, okay? so. I just want to explain grandparents, okay? And I want to explain why they do what they do. The first thing you need to understand is that at a certain point in aging in our country, the filter goes away. <laughs> I'm already getting testimony. Okay, so this food is terrible. This is amazing. Uh, if you bring someone home, it's not uncommon for grandma to say, where'd you find that one? Like a four-year-old, if they think it, they say it because they're like, you know, <laughs> I'm not wasting any time. I used to shush my father-in-law all the time. He had a propensity, if he came across an injustice, if somebody was not treating somebody else right, out of his mouth, he, would, he used a phrase, absolutely not and his chest would puff out and he would go into, you know, I'm going to make this right mode. Absolutely not. And I would be like all these years, Dave, shh, 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 no, this is wrong. Dave, shh, you're embarrassing us. And I would shush him. A few weeks ago at one of our schools, I came across a wrong that was happening. And I did not recognize that my voice was raising in volume and intensity. And then out of my own mouth come the words, absolutely not. And, I, and Jill's grabbing me by the elbow and I had to call my father-in-law later that day and go, Dave, you're awesome. <laughs> and I owe you an apology and I understand now. And he just laughed. So the first thing about your grandparents is that the filter is gone. The second thing about your grandparents is that they have zero tolerance for stupid. They have, <laughs> I'm getting a lot of testimony today, okay? Many older people, not all, but many older people have figured out how life works. They have figured out how life works. They know, what's, they know what matters, they know what doesn't matter, and so they have a zero tolerance for decisions and behavior that is gonna cause you to smack into a tree. My mother, my mother will often ask about people that we know, and I will explain the people and what they're doing, and before I'm even finished explaining a situation out of her mouth, well, that's stupid. <laughs> now, I would like to brag on my mom. My mom is wise. My mom is wise. My mom has figured out life. She has. And she's figured out, she knows what matters and she knows what doesn't. And the past couple of years, I've heard, a, heard her say a lot. Uh, she's, I don't know if she's processing life or if there have been a lot of other people that we know from school and whatnot that have been doing this kind of thing. But out of her mouth has been this string of sentences. Mark, 
Your father and I moved every single year for nine years in a row. Your dad took a job in Frankfurt. Your dad took a job in Hartford City. Your dad took a job in Marion. And each and every time we thought, oh, if we just take this job, oh, if we just move to this city, oh, we will be happy. Well, let me tell you, the grass is not greener. And she's saying something significant when she's saying that, okay? Uh, so older people, again, the second thing about them is that they have a zero tolerance for stupid. Now, the, here's the awesome thing about your grandparents. If you're about to make a major decision, just go spend some time with grandma or grandpa and tell them what you're considering and then wait for their reaction. That's a good thermometer, barometer about whether or not you should proceed, if you should slow down. <laughs> like, you know, if, if you wanna, you know, just, just do that. So here's the thing. Many people over the age of 70 have figured out that chasing after happiness does not work. They have figured it out. Chasing after happiness does not work. So if you think that getting a particular degree or having a particular job or marrying a particular person or having a particular number of children is gonna make you happy, I hate to tell you this, but you're in for some what we call life learning. Um, uh, what's that? Experience is a hard teacher because the test is first and the learning comes second. <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay? So for those of you that just graduated, this is really important. Actually, for all of you here today, this is kind of really important. And if I could condense what I'm trying to say in a nutshell, it would be this. Don't chase after the American dream. Do not chase after the American dream or your personal happiness. Don't make that your chief goal in life. Don't do it. Succeeding at life has little to do with how much you make, where you live, or doing what makes you happy. Instead of asking the question, will this make me happy, I would suggest to you ask a different one. Is this problem one I could help solve? Is this cause something to which I could give the best of me over the course of my life? I wanna share one chapter in the Bible with you today from the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. Um, it's found in your Old Testament, and it's named after a man called Nehemiah, right? It's awesome. Nehemiah was an Israelite. He was an Israelite at a time when there was no more Israel. All of the Jewish people had been defeated, uh, and they had been deported. Their towns and cities had been burned and ransacked, and huge numbers of Jews had been deported to other nations and cities. Now, Nehemiah was one of the Jews living in a city called Susa, which was part of the Persian Empire. And the, the Persian kings had a different and new policy of handling all these deported peoples. And their policy was, go back to your homeland. As long as you pay taxes and do what we tell you, it's fine, go back. And so the big shift of people again started up once again, all right? And so that's where we pick things up in Nehemiah chapter one, and we're gonna look at all 10 verses of Nehemiah chapter one. So if you brought a paper Bible, you can open that up or you can call it up on your smart device. All right, Nehemiah one. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Han and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, 
and some other men had just returned from Jerusalem. Nehemiah asked, he inquired, he wanted to know what was going on. The verb that's used, the Hebrew verb that's used there means to demand an answer. In other words, he really wanted to know what it was really like back in Jerusalem. Now, right off the bat, this isn't the status quo. Nehemiah was a high-ranking official. He had a good job. The Jews in his city had settled in for the long haul. They had been deported. Their their grandfathers and great-grandfathers were the ones who had been deported. And all this talk about Jerusalem and Israel was just talk that they heard about from their grandparents. Their life was in Persia. Their jobs were in Persia. Their homes were in Persia. They were Jews, yes, but they were uh, Jewish Persians. Okay? And so Nehemiah asks, he really wants to know. It would have been easy for him to remain uninvolved or unaware, but he wanted to know what was going on. All right? And so that's where we pick things up, verse 3. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. So they give this report, right? Verse four, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. I sat down and wept. Now, I know they didn't have the internet or CNN back then, But it's a mistake for us to think they didn't have news. People had been coming back and forth from Jerusalem and Susa. The people who lived in Susa knew it wasn't going well. Those were the reports that were coming out. It's rough, it's not well. You know, it's one thing to know about something, and then it's another thing to either experience it or have someone you care about a lot have experienced it, and all of a sudden it comes alive to you, right? It's like the refugees all over Europe, right? We can read about it, we can see the pictures, we know it's a problem, but then if you go over there and you see it, or you have a brother or sister, somebody that you really care about, and they have a firsthand experience about it, and they're telling you what's going on with passion, it has a, it has a propensity to grab your heart. And that's what happens to Nehemiah right here in this passage. There's something about the way in which his brother describes what's going on, and it grabs his heart. And he can't put it out of his mind. He felt it. He didn't just know about the need now. He felt the need. And it became a burden and a passion in him. Now, there are a couple of things I want to tell you about burdens and passions and when you're grabbed by something, especially a need. The first is, don't let the immensity of the need paralyze you. I mean, it's easy to, I could never. We That's too big. Okay. That's one extreme. The other extreme is to immediately jump in. Well, there's a need, let's go, okay? Those are the two extremes, avoid those, (laughs) okay? So let's keep going, Nehemiah chapter one, verses five and following. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying day and night for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. 
We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please, remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you're exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. So Nehemiah settled into a several week, several month pattern of weeping, praying, fasting, weeping, praying, fasting. He was tore up about this situation in Jerusalem, wasn't he? He was tore up, couldn't get it out of his mind. He couldn't shake it, doing the fun things, doing his job, it just, it wouldn't leave him. It kind of stuck to him. And so he tells, we, we see some things here, all right? Nehemiah settled in for the long haul. <coughs> God, what are you going to do? And he knew, he knew, like we talked about last week, God sees a problem and a need first. God cares before we care. And God has a plan before we ever start getting involved. And in verse nine, okay, I want to come back to verse nine. He says this, but if you return to me and obey my commandments and live by them, even if you're exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I've chosen for my name to be honored. In other words, in Nehemiah 1.9, what, what, what Nehemiah is saying is, I know what you've promised, and I wonder, I wonder, is, are these new Persian kings that have this new policy, are you at work in this? Is this the time? Is it now? Like, I know what you've promised, and I can take that to the bank, but is that right now? Could I be part of that? And so that's part of what he's praying. And the other thing that we see is what he says in verse 5, uh, Nehemiah 1.5. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. In other words, Nehemiah knows what God is like. He knows God's character. And so those two things are informing what he's going, wh how he's walking this out. All right? Nehemiah realized that the walls aren't happening in Jerusalem, not for lack of money, not for lack of organization, but because of sin. He talks about it. Remember those, remember that, th those passages? That's verses six and seven. Uh, Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. This is, this is huge. Yes, even, even I and my own family. Nehemiah doesn't do the whole, the, your people, Lord, are repugnant. They are dull. They are stiff-necked. Those people of yours, oh Lord, you should do something and get involved. I would be happy to help. No, that's not his attitude. Actually, that would be a crapitude, but that's not his attitude. He doesn't have the cape and the puffed-out chest. He realizes he's part of the problem. And he puts himself in that, and he identifies with it. And it's part of the churning that's going on on the inside of him. I and my father's house, we are part of this problem. 
Well, the kicker is in the very last verse. Uh, O Lord, hear my prayer, verse 11. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah wasn't just anybody. He was the cupbearer. The cupbearer had the chief responsibility to choose and taste the wine before it was served to the king. So you were kind of like a wine connoisseur, but you were also making sure that the king was not poisoned because they loved killing kings back then and poisoning was a great way to do it. And so in that position, he was a man who was in a position of trust, but he was also a trusted man. He, had, he would have had the king's ear because of that position of trust and he could have been able to offer advice there are some documents that historians have unearthed that suggest the cupbearer in those days might have also had the royal signet. So you know anything about how life worked back then? If you had the royal signet, it means you had authority because you could do the plump, this is from the king, and someone would have to carry it out. And so there are documents that suggest the cupbearer uh, had kept the royal signet. So Nehemiah was all of that, and he lived in the winter palace at Susa, he had it made, right? He's upper level government. He's got a good life. Why should he care about Jerusalem and the walls that are broken down? It's not his problem. It's no skin off his back. He's fine. Those poor people in Jerusalem, we should probably pray for them, <laughs> right? He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He actually, and we're gonna get into this, but he actually takes a risk by approaching the king with this problem. But it comes after months of weeping, fasting, praying, and being committed. And it's, you see it in his phrase, grant me success today. In other words, I'm involved now. I wanna see this problem solved. Can I ask you a question, especially you graduates? Is there anything that moves you? What moves you? If it's just a six-figure salary or a home on the bluffs of the Pacific Ocean, I'm gonna tell you, it's not enough. <laughs> it's not enough, you will get bored with it. If you don't believe me, ask anyone in this room with gray hair, they will tell you. <laughs> you will eventually get bored with it. It's nice to have, but it's not enough to move a life. What moves you? And here's the thing, if the only problems that you can see are your own problems, what it means is it's gonna doom you to a small life in a world that gets smaller and smaller. And you guys in youth group will remember we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Let me ask you another question. Do you believe in God's promises? In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus makes a bold claim. He says, I will build my church. You know, there are a lot of people that are doing the whole thing of, well, the church is just gonna evaporate. There are people, there are well-meaning intellectuals that say religion is just gonna go away in 50 years. And, and whenever they say that, I just chuckle. I chuckle. I chuckle because as science continues to progress, it only confirms some things. As archeology span continues to progress, it only, con uh, uh, it only affirms the biblical record. And so I go, well, good luck with that. Christianity's been around 2,000 years and it's not going anywhere. And Jesus said, I will build my church. 
So would you commit to something? Would you commit to his kingdom and his work? Again, I just want to implore you, don't throw your life away chasing the American dream just so that you can end up retired early and seeing America from a motorhome. There's more to life than that. There's more to life than that. In this country, our political system is broken. Do you know that it takes $2 billion to become president of the United States? I'm sorry, but don't tell me that some of the people writing those checks aren't going to do the whole do what we say thing, okay? Our political system is broken. Our penal uh, criminal justice system is broken. It's disproportionately filled with people of non-white status. And there's all kinds of injustice that goes on on a continuing, ongoing basis. The penal criminal system is broken. Our family systems are broken. The financial system is broken. For many of you who are young, you were sold this life by the banking financial system. Go to college, borrow on it. Take out student loans, and then finance some trips to Cancun, and then when you get out, buy a car and do some other things. And when you hit 30 and you're 150 or $200,000 in debt and you haven't even bought your first home, <laughs> thank you. That's broken. That's broken. There are all the, our educational system is broken. We have teachers that are like, please get these government people out of my life. I just want to teach my kids and love them and nurture their souls and do what I was called to do. Okay? There are, uh, what I'm trying to say is the opportunities are endless. The opportunities are endless in this country. I know we are a first world country. I know I'm told we, we have first world problems, and yes, but the opportunities to, like Nehemiah, become burdened with something that is broken and wrong and that needs to be addressed are endless. I hope and I pray that God will help you to have the eyes to see some of those problems and maybe through a process burden you to become part of the solution.